from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. I'm Ty Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. A war of words escalates as Russia declares war on Ukraine. You saw crude energy prices in Europe this morning went up a little over 40% in one day. The news also sent commodity prices soaring. It's really a, a, a realignment of world trade. We take a deep dive into why the uncertainty is fueling commodity markets. As chaos played out this week, transportation troubles are still in the driver's seat. We're currently about 80,000 drivers short in the trucking industry. In uh, 10 years, they're thinking it's a closer to uh, 250 to 300,000 jobs that we're going to be short in the trucking industry. And in John's world, autonomous tractors, where are they going? Now for the news, Russia declaring war on Ukraine as, as Russian troops invaded. The news fueled commodity prices while the stock market took a hard fall. In a televised address overnight Wednesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the military operation in eastern Ukraine. The news sent U.S. stocks in a spiral. Grains and oil prices, however, skyrocketed, with crude oil trading over $100 a barrel, hitting the highest level since 2014. This is a major development that is affecting markets. You saw... Uh, uh, um, uh, crude energy prices in Europe this morning went up a little over 40% in one day. You think energy prices are high here. President Biden condemning what the White House called an unprovoked and unjustified attack, vowing to hold Russia accountable. Biden addressing the nation Thursday afternoon, announcing additional measures beyond the sanctions already imposed. And the invasion sparking a rally in grains with wheat trading up 50 cents t Thursday and front month corn contracts up more than 30 cents. And on the world stage, European wheat prices smashed previous record highs as the invasion threw into question ag exports from two of the world's biggest producers of key commodities. Dan Bossi of Ag Resource Company telling me the situation could cause a greater need for U.S. produced commodities. It's really a, a, a realignment of world trade. What we don't know about, of course, is the sanctions. And, you know, the Russians have also threatened that if another country were to, let's say, navally blockade the Bosporus, which is the, the feeder of all the grain coming down, that they would take actions against that country. So there's a lot we don't know yet. But when you think about 31% of world wheat trade being domiciled in Ukraine and Russia, you know, 30% of world corn trade and then 31, or barley trade, excuse me, and then the, somewhere around 29% of sun oil trade, it's a really big deal. The invasion also injecting more fuel to an already rampant inflation situation. Tommy Grisafi of Advanced Trading calling it the biggest transfer of wealth ever. And while he warns that the U.S. could be on the verge of a disaster, he says it's time for farmers to take action. They had a chance to sell $6 DS23 corn futures last night. If you had that order in the elevator, I'll let you in on a little secret time. The best way to be able to sell beans up 90 cents at night is to have an order in. You can't you can't see that they were up 90 at up at night and now they're down 20 and say I wish I would have sold them there. Wishes aren't going to get it done. Actions are. USDA Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack addressing the situation during the Ag Outlook Forum in Washington, D.C. earlier this week, specifically talking about fertilizer prices. During Vilsack's Ag Outlook Forum address, the Agriculture Secretary painted an optimistic picture for agriculture overall. But one area of concern 
is the future of fertilizer. Vilsack saying that he hopes fertilizer suppliers that may be impacted by the Ukraine crisis won't take unfair advantage of the situation. That's as input prices are already at or near record highs. Vilsack talked about what's causing the fertilizer price spike, including natural gas prices, but he noted there are things producers may be able to do in order to manage the risk. There are obviously crops that may use less fertilizer. There are also conservation programs that can be embraced and incorporated that could potentially reduce those input costs. We established uh, through our risk management uh, agency a split nitrogen policy. Uh, this is, a, I think, an extraordinary opportunity for us to, to basically provide risk management for those who want to reduce uh, uh, nitrogen application instead of doing it twice during the year, only doing it once, and an opportunity potentially to receive compensation if, in fact, production uh, declines. Bloomberg reporting earlier this week the only potash mine in Belarus has declared a force majeure. It reports shipments have been stopped as a result of U.S. and European sanctions. Belarus accounts for about one-fifth of the global supply of potash. And when you add in Russia, the two areas are prominent producers. The Belarus, Belarusia and uh, Russia themselves account for about 40 percent of global potash exports. And then there's significant uh, export exposure to the Russian market on a broad array of nitrogen and phosphate products. So the headline numbers are a concern uh, for sure. Well, the bull run in commodity prices on Thursday happening as USDA also unveiled its acreage projections during the Ag Outlook Forum. USDA indicating overall acres won't hit a record high, even with the higher commodity prices. USDA Chief Economist Seth Meyer says corn acres are expected to hit 92 million this year. Soybeans coming in at 88 million acres, also higher than last year. Wheat acres forecast to come in at 48 million acres, which would be a 2 million acre bump from 2021. And with the war in Ukraine throwing more volatility into the markets, USDA's Chief Economist telling me it's too early to know what impact it will have on both prices and acres this year. Now, does it certainly make it a lot broader potential set of of, of outcomes, yes, but I think we're really going to have to watch how this, uh, because, you know, there's the direct effect on grains, there's the secondary effect on energy, there's the third level effect on sanctions, there's, you know, reorganize, I, I, I don't think we know enough to know where this is going to play out and how it goes. So we're going to continue to watch it. I think it just throws the door wider open into where we could, where we could end up. Well, USDA also making revisions to the overall demand picture during the Ag Outlook Forum this week. USDA bumped U.S. soybean exports by 100 million bushels. Exports now set at 2.15 billion bushels. The decision was partially driven by the drought in South America. USDA cut corn exports by 75 million bushels. All right, those are the headlines. Well, a blizzard in North Dakota earlier this week providing some much needed moisture for that area. We'll have a check of weather when we come back. Your U.S. Farm Report forecast is brought to you by Zoetis. Even though calves don't wait for the perfect weather to arrive, you can count on Zoetis to be there. Share a picture of your newest calf and you could win a calving season survival kit. Enter now at calvingseason.com. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Urasavik. Matt, we were in Fargo for the Northern Corn and Soybean Expo earlier this week. A blizzard hitting North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota. Not fun for my travel, but welcome for an area that is still seeing dry conditions. 
Yeah, time. That's right. They had a lot of snow up there in the north, right across the northern Great Lakes. But we have seen uh, still not much improvement in that drought monitor up there in that neck of the woods and still a lot of uh, extreme to even exceptional drought conditions. Texas, Oklahoma back into parts of New Mexico and still up and down the Rockies there towards the west coast. We need a lot more moisture and we're getting closer to that spring planting season. So hopefully we can get some of that here. But if we take a look here at the root zone. We're still looking at a very dry soil back where those drought conditions have persisted, but an area that has seen improvement here up towards Wisconsin into Michigan, right down through the center of the country, Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys there, parts of Tennessee and northern Alabama seeing a lot of moisture. Same thing right there in Michigan. So seen some improvement, but need a lot more, especially out in the West. And if we look at this week, it's not going to be very active. At least to start off and that's because we're going to see a big ridge building right into the middle of the country. We're going to see a lot of warmer air moving in. Still some chilly shots of air across the northeast could see a little bit of lake effect downwind of the Great Lakes and then you see that little kind of trough right there in the Pacific Northwest. That's going to bring some much needed rain up to the Pacific Northwest and then eventually you see that kind of dragging right through the middle of the country. Storm system will get going snow to the north rain down through the south and right through the middle of the country. Still where we're seeing a lot of that, but that's as we head towards the end of the week. So starting off on Monday, very mild and with high pressure across most of the country, just some showers exiting with a the front there in Florida. And then we're going to be watching for this storm system starting to bring some rain into the northern Cascades and some higher elevation snow out there as well. Not going far as we head into Wednesday, still looking at rainy scenarios there from northern parts of California all the way up into southern Canada. Meanwhile, sun shining across most of the country, even across the south and east and again just a light chance there for some light lake effect snow showers across the northeast. Then as we get towards Friday, this is when it becomes more active. We're talking about a big storm system, snow to the north, rain to the south, mild out ahead of it, but chilly air coming in back behind. So we're going to start to see that overspread as we head into next weekend, but temperatures this week above normal out ahead of that storm system, but below normal back where we are going to see a lot of that precipitation. And if we look at the precip, most of it going on across the north, but we're going to be looking at some kind of developing there in the middle and latter half of the week. And then here's the springtime temperatures, March, April and May above normal for the eastern two thirds of the country and below normal in the west. Meanwhile, there's a look at the precip outlook for March, April and May time back to you. All right, thanks, Matt. Well, a lot happening with the markets that we didn't really get to discuss in our marketing roundtables this week since we had that discussion on Monday from the Expo. That includes the surge in commodity prices due to the war in Ukraine. But from inputs to acreage, there's still a lot to cover. So we'll head to the Northern Corn and Soybean Expo in Fargo to do that next. U.S. Farm Report. From the North Dakota Corn and Soybean Expo is brought to you by the North Dakota Corn Utilization Council and the North Dakota Soybean Council. As the world grows, we're helping plant opportunity by putting your checkoff dollars to work. 
Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend from the Northern Corn and Soybean Expo here in Fargo, North Dakota, getting some moisture outside, which is a good sign here after the year that we've had. But Christy Von on, we also have uh, Josh Lindell and Treg Cronin on the panel with us today. And Christy, I want to start with you because as we look at this acreage debate, a lot of focus on North Dakota, South Dakota, if we could see a big swing in acres. But at this point, what are prices telling us? Do you think we'll see a big shift here? I was actually surprised even before being started to rally, a lot of my guys had said, nope, we're going to stick with corn and we're not going to budge off of that. And I think what's going to happen here is we're not going to see those acres shift off of corn, but Minneapolis wheat really needs to get up and moving if it wants to make something of itself and find some of those acres. Otherwise, beans looking very, very profitable. Not only do they look profitable around North Dakota and South Dakota, we have some phenomenal basis levels already for harvest delivery beans. Yeah, so Treg, do you agree with that? I mean, when you look at spring wheat right now and you look at input prices, does it pencil the plant spring wheat, or do you think we'll see some of the shift to, to, to crops like corn and soy? Um, I think right now spring wheat is, is not buying any acres. It's not stealing any acres. Uh, when you look at, at the nitrogen requirements for wheat, a lot of uh, the misconception is, is that, well, wheat takes less nitrogen than, than corn does, and, and not if you're going for, for top-end yields and top-end quality. So uh, as, as futures prices stand today, no, spring wheat is kind of on the verge of, of losing a few acres, which coming out of the drought last year, uh, looking at the balance sheet headed in, it doesn't have any acres to give away. So uh, spring wheat could be a sleeper down the road. Right now, it, it, uh, it's, it's not buying acres, and yeah, corn and soybeans should get all the acres they want come this spring. Yeah, Josh, I mean, we're focused on input prices and availability, but let's look at prices right now. Are there any indication that we will see fertilizer prices soften at least a little bit before we, we hit spring planting? Unfortunately, I, it, the window's closing too quickly. When you start looking, we need to bring more imports. We got to increase the supply, and we got to bring that from overseas. But unfortunately, if you had a ship ready to roll today from the Middle East, for example, on urea, you're talking 30 day sail time to get it to the Gulf. Then you've got to unload into barges, and you've probably got at least another 30 to 45 days to get that up the river system into the terminal and out to the farm. By the time you start talking those type of logistics, that's May. So it's getting to be very, very late, and it looks like corn is going to continue to stay high on the acres, demand is going to stay high, and we're going to stay on the snug side. Never say never, right? But it's starting to look like we're going to see it be firm all the way through at least the first half of spring. Treg, at this point, what do you think is the biggest risk when it comes to sweeping prices? Um, I think right now the, the, the demand base that we've got coming on uh, on the horizon with uh, added renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, biodiesel, um, that's incredibly attractive, but it might be, might be just a, a bit too far out, might be a year or two out, might be three years out. Um, so the risk is, is that, that we plant a lot of soybeans based on that demand coming, and in the short term, uh, we're, we're a bit oversupplied in the, uh, in, the, in the short run. Long term, the demand looks incredibly attractive, but uh, that could be a risk is, is we do uh, plant more soybeans, we have a good crop, and uh, the demand base isn't quite there yet. What acreage number do you feel like we would hit that you feel like we would be oversupplied when it comes to soybeans this year, Treg? Um, I would say that we're probably plus or minus 90 million acres. I think on the, on the under 90 million, we probably have demand for, for most or all of those soybeans. You get over 90 million and, and uh, there's probably excess beans around. Christy, do you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think you also, like you said, planes that renewable diesel is a huge story to look at a year out from now. Like you said, it's probably a year or two. I agree with that. Yeah, well, another topic that's huge right now, we'll continue to talk about those input prices. So let's take a quick break and then we'll be back with more U.S. Farm Report.
ag equipment is nothing new, but announcements already this year by major equipment manufacturers has autonomy in the spotlight. Here's John Phipps. At recent farm shows, John Deere has captured the spotlight with pictures and descriptions of an autonomous tractor. And just like six years ago when Case debuted a concept model of a self-driving tractor, farmers are intrigued to say the least. Now, I'm not a skeptic of self-driving vehicles, but have some thoughts about the adoption of this technology. One pertinent analogy is mine haul trucks. This is the Komatsu Autonomous Haul Truck announced in 2016, and that was one of the first. Six years later, there are about 800 autonomous haul trucks in operation globally, uh, over half of them in Australia. But they represent only about 1.5% of all such vehicles. Large open pit mines are a logical early application for this technology, tightly controlled routes and traffic. However, this technology is a staggering leap, and the mining industry is staggering to make that leap, even in their straightforward environment. This is often typical of technology adoption. This simplified graph illustrates a rough summary of what researchers have discovered since beginning to study this phenomenon in 1962. Not only is it really slow at first, even for gee whiz inventions, there is a crucial chasm where earlier adopters struggle to convince the large majority. This is also a crucial point in a manufacturer's business plan. All the real profits are on the right side of the chasm. Autonomous farm machinery faces another nearly unique restraint. These are the plat mats of, of my township a century apart. The land is divided into virtually the same number of fields, about 250. I don't see any pathway to massive contiguous tracks where autonomous machinery can pay for itself. Our land ownership pattern will impede deploying such machines far more than cost or expertise. Just moving from field to field is an ongoing constraint on machinery size, maneuverability, and operator expertise. This technology will show up sooner in places like Brazil or Ukraine, where field size is measured in hundreds if not thousands of hectares. An alternative strategy for our Midwestern geography might be multiple, smaller, and cheaper autonomous units that are fit our fields and roads better. Autonomous technology may be adopted reasonably soon, but I think almost exclusively on those farms who post the Combine Fleet drone videos we've all gotten tired of. Thanks, John. And you can email your comments to him at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. All right, we need to take a quick break, and then we'll have Tractor Tales with Machinery Pete. Hey, folks, welcome back to Tractor Tales. Now, this week, take a trip with me. We're going to North Central Illinois to check out a 1947 John Deere G. This is a 1947 G John Deere. I bought it from a guy in Kiwani. They used it on the farm for most of its life, plowing and disking. And, and uh, we totally brought it home, totally restored it. And we give it a few extra little good stuff in it. And we do a lot of plowing with this tractor uh, at our plow shows and stuff like that. We put a special camshaft in it, special pistons, give it more power for the at the poles. It run when I got it, it just needed a little love and care. Uh, it run, but it needed overhauled, so we did all that, and that's when we 
put all the extra good stuff in it. I guess they just was the what is a what is deer's largest row crop, I guess, and it, you know, and they seem to lug real well. Uh, near, you know, they're a, they're a good three bottom tractor, three sixteens. Sometimes we plow, you know, depending on where we go to plow, we can plow up to thirty to twenty to thirty acres, or some, you know, sometimes it's you know guys are ten or twelve, and we have done forty of my of when I had plow days it was a forty acre piece we plowed bunch of us all get together. A lot of the G's were all fuel, but this this was a conversion deer had. This does have the gas conversion in it too. So it's strictly a gas tractor. Thanks, Greg. Well, Russia invading Ukraine threw another level of uncertainty into the world markets. That's as the world supply chain continues to hit road bumps. We'll navigate the trouble with transportation next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, transportation troubles are at the driver's seat right now. From water to roads, labor issues continue to produce problems. And that's as we navigate those in this week's Farm Journal Report. Trucks, I love them, I love them. In the late 1970s, trucking gained interest thanks to the big screen. But today, it's a job that doesn't boast the glamour it once did. So we don't have a ton of uh, young people or other uh, people that are just dying to get into the trucking industry. It's no longer a glamorous gig that people really want to get into anymore. So uh, we are going to continue to see shortages. Supply chain issues as a lack of drivers plagues the trucking industry. We're currently about 80,000 drivers short in the trucking industry. In uh, 10 years, they're thinking it's closer to uh, 250 to 300,000 jobs that we're going to be short in the trucking industry. Kelly Crapu is a safety director and compliance manager for True North Compliance Services. She navigates the regulations that have a tight grip on truckers today. I think that we're losing not only to those short haul careers, but other careers that they can be in a more controlled environment and a little bit safer and again have more conducive to a family life. In late January, both the U.S. and Canada put in a vaccine mandate which requires truckers crossing the border to be vaccinated. We've seen that the vaccine mandate uh, coupled with the protest that's going on in Canada is also um, has affected uh, cars coming out of Canada for now. Um, you will be seeing it in the agri-industry in the coming weeks when we're trying to get uh, fertilizer out of Canada. And just a week later, a new CDL requirement hit the trucking industry. And this particular regulation went into effect in 2018. Uh, it was passed final rule, final register is what it's called, in 2018 um, to go into effect, full effect, in 2020. The FMCSA did decide that not all of the parts were ready to go, so they gave us an extension to 2020, and then that extension went even further into 2022. Without either the Biden administration and the Trump administration stepping in to halt the new regulations, it could now cost those looking to get a CDL or upgrade to a Class A license in both time and money. If you need a class A and all of the endorsements that would go with it, that's when you're going to talk about your 21 days and your larger, larger amounts of money, $8,500 to $10,000. Crapu says agriculture is exempt as long as the driver stays within the 150 mile radius air bubble. But if you travel outside that zone, 
The new regulations could be stifling. If you were to go outside that 150 air miles to take, let's say, your corn to, corn to a grain elevator that's outside the 150, all of the federal regulations would apply to you, and that would include the commercial driver's license requirement. The new CDL requirements could be yet another barrier for attracting new and younger truck drivers. As Crapu says, some truck drivers are finding better paying jobs that allow work-life balance. We're losing drivers, too, to not even truck driving jobs that are local. They can go work in a warehouse, an Amazon warehouse, pulling packages for the same amount of money and very little risk. As the dire dilemma of truck driver shortages rolls on, Mike Steenhook of the Soy Transportation Council says there's one main issue in the driver's seat. We're really seeing this problem in each of the links of our supply chain, and I would argue the biggest culprit is a shortage of labor. And as renewed interest in U.S. soybeans flows from trouble with South America's crop, it's something Steenhook is watching closely. It's great that we've got demand. Uh, strong demand for what farmers grow, but if we don't have a transportation system that can accommodate it, then we're not going to be profitable, and the inland waterway system is a very consequential part of that supply chain. It's more than a lack of truckers causing concern. It's one thing to have a truck. You have to have a truck driver. It's one thing to have a barge flotilla. You have to have someone that can actually work uh, those, those, those tows. And so that's the real concern that we have. Steenhook says containers piled up at ports is also pinching soybean exports in some areas. We see those images of all these container vessels lined up outside of the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach. Having the ability to access some of those empty steel boxes, those containers to be able to you know, they come in with consumer goods and then they get emptied and then they get loaded with agricultural products for the backhaul movement to Asia. That has become very challenging and, and that's going to unfortunately remain so probably throughout the course of 2022. The largest shipping company in the world recently said they expect things to ease the second half of the year as freight rates on the busiest shipping routes remain up to 10 times higher than what shippers saw in 2019. But as backlogs mount, Steenhook says container constraints are at the forefront for the foreseeable future. Unfortunately, it really is still kind of at its apex. Now we're hoping we're seeing some numbers that it might be moderating throughout the course of this year. And you would you would assume with inflation being what it is, that will have some degree of impact on consumer spending that might mitigate some of the amount of freight that's coming in and helping create this this log jam. But uh, unfortunately, this is something that is going to be with us for a number of months. As agriculture continues to navigate shipping issues, Steenhook says the recent infrastructure package passed by Congress is a win. What did happen is some of these projects did move to the batter's box. There actually is funding that has been deployed for some of these infrastructure projects, including one particularly on the upper Mississippi River, a lock and dam project, lock and dam 25. A dam that will now see a longer chamber, allowing for barge traffic to move efficiently and reliably. It's a savings of time, so going through a longer lock chamber uh, is will take you 45 minutes, maybe even 30 minutes instead of two plus hours. So there's a time savings. In addition to the funding from the infrastructure bill, Steenhook says dredging has become a dire need and something that continues to take place along vital shipping veins. Ironically, it was through the flood emergency legislation that was passed in 2019, but then did provide some funding for dredging activity that continued into 2021. As river levels remain extremely low, dredging has helped barges continue to flow. It allowed dredging activity to occur on the inland waterway system so that when we had low water levels, we were able to still have barge transportation basically continue unimpeded. 
from investing in inland waterway system to renewed funding to repair rural bridges. Injecting funds into infrastructure could help at a time where supply chain chaos continues. Now, Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack did talk about infrastructure in his Ag Outlook Forum address this week, and he says infrastructure is another bright spot for agriculture. All right, when we come back, we'll continue our discussion from the Northern Corn and Soybean Expo. Again, that discussion happened before the issues in Ukraine, but there's still a lot to cover when we come back. U.S. Farm Report from the North Dakota Corn and Soybean Expo is brought to you by the North Dakota Corn Utilization Council and the North Dakota Soybean Council. As the world grows, we're helping plant opportunity by putting your checkoff dollars to work. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report here in Fargo, North Dakota. All right, you know, we, we talked about acreage. We talked about what number would it be that we would be oversupplied with soybeans. Josh, at this point, Stonex, I know you've done some grower surveys, put pencil to paper. What's Stonex's acreage estimate right now? So Arlen Suderman, our chief economist, he's currently got our number plugged in, I think, at just a little bit over 91 million acres of corn and right at 90 million acres of beans. And that was something we just changed, I think, here in the last few weeks. Uh, but we recognize that's going to be a number that's going to be a moving target here through the spring as the markets continue to ebb and flow. Yeah, and speaking of the moving target, when you look at fertilizer availability and prices, uh, you know, the Commerce Department recently ruling that UAN imports from Russia and Trinidad are coming in at, a, at an unfair price. It seems like that could open the door for more tariffs on fertilizer. Do you think that is something that we see before spring or is it more longer term, Josh? It's longer term, but we won't see the final determination until the summer. But unfortunately, the effects are being felt today because now with the preliminary duties uh, rate being set, any ton that comes in is subject to that. They have to put that money down in case they sit there and say yes during the summertime. So it is actively shutting off Trinidad imports. It's actively shutting off Russian imports. And that those two nations alone account for 80% of our UAN imports into the US marketplace. Well, and Christy said, you know, budgets seem okay to, you know, now, but when you look at 2023, not so great. If we see these added tariffs, I mean, it seems like it's just going to add more, more pain to that price scenario for inputs. It is. It's going to, we will continue to see UAN ebb and flow. It's going to move along with urea and it's going to move with anhydrous because it can't stay too high or else it's okay. going to lose too much demand and there's an oversupply situation very, very quickly. So it's too early to sit there and say, oh, we're going to stay where we're at or move higher from this point on into the next five-year period. But what we need to get used to is the fact that if this case gets approved, which it very likely will this summer, we're going to see UAM move back to the premium nitrogen source. Well, Treg, when we look at corn and soybeans, we've talked a lot about soybeans. When it comes to corn, though, it seems like soybeans are really helping prop up corn prices as well, all of the issues in Brazil. Do you think that relationship continues, or what is the biggest risk for corn at this point? Um, I think the biggest risk for corn is, is uh, I mean, the U.S. is still number one, and so if we come into this growing season, we plant all the acres that we're that we're planning on, and uh, we get the yield of you know 177, 178 bushels, which I think is is definitely achievable considering we we produced a record yield this year, and we had less than desirable growing conditions across a huge swath of the northern plains. So, if we uh, don't have those issues, uh, we raise the crop. We can supply enough corn, uh, I think to meet most of those demand needs. I don't think we're setting back to the kind of price levels we saw you know, during the three, four, five year period uh, between you know, 15 and, and 19 by any means. Um, but, but I think we can supply the corn we need. Uh, but China remains uh, kind of an asterisk out there as well because they've got a tremendous amount of corn still on the books. 
that they need to take. And if they don't take that, if, if China's not in that market or if they prefer to keep taking Ukrainian corn uh, or, or shift to South American corn, um, that remains a risk uh, for our export program. Um, because long term, it seems like ethanol is kind of leveling out. Uh, it's, it's consistent demand, but it's kind of leveling out. Feed demand, I don't think you're going to see anything crazy there. So really, it comes down to those exports. And uh, China's a big, big part of that. So if there is a risk, it, it could be Chinese demand one way or the other. Yeah, Chris, at this point, it seems like corn demand's firing on, on all cylinders. So do you agree, is, is China, does that continue to be our biggest risk? Yeah, it does. I mean, there's a huge issue with demand, right? We saw China over the last two years buy a pile of corn from the United States. That's not typical for them to see. So um, maybe this is the start of a new trend, but if it's not the start of a new trend, we could be looking at a, a really different situation. Right now, U.S. carryout in corn, world carryout in corn is just fine. It's not too small, it's not too big. And so it's got a lot of flexibility. The big question, along with exports, going to be South Americans, uh, Brazil's second corn crop, the Safrina corn crop. That's a huge exporting uh, corn crop for them. And if they don't have it, if they run into problems, that's where you could see more come back to the U.S. A lot more to talk about, but that does it for time. So thank you so much for being with us this week. We really appreciate it. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, the greatest challenges bring the greatest rewards. At least that's what the Riggers family from Idaho has learned. And as Clinton Griffiths tells us, the 2022 top producer of the year finalist has built a business that can withstand the storms. Winter in the Pacific Northwest drapes a blanket of white across the Palouse. Inside their shop, the Riggers are hard at work preparing for another season. Homesteaded in 1895 by German immigrant Frederick Riggers, this family has spent the last 125 years creating one of the premier farms in Nez Perce, Idaho. He didn't have the opportunity to farm in Germany and that's why he came to the United States and eventually ended up here on the Camas Prairie. Like in Oklahoma, they fired the starting pistol and he raced west about three or four miles, four miles west of Nez Perce. And like that plot of land, and we've been here ever since. Christopher and his wife Natalie moved back to the operation in 2017, buying out his uncle and joining forces with his father Nathan. It wasn't so much that we you know, had to ask him, we just had to hold him off until uh, the opportunity arose. The farm grows wheat, canola, barley, turf grass seed, among other things, on these rolling hills. An aerial view of harvest makes it clear why this region is unique. Well, the Northwest comparative advantage is winter crops because we have very dry, arid summers, so our spring crops don't often finish very well. As you can tell, soil health and conservation are an important way to protect the land and nearby streams and watershed. Our farm is between 3,000 and 4,000 feet above sea level. It's a very high elevation. And surrounding the Camas Prairie are four uh, very sensitive river systems for salmon habitat. They've even had some farms certified as salmon safe. And in 2020, they started Coldstream Malt and Grain Company, working with another farm. They clean and sell barley to craft malt houses in the region and across the country. And we're also selling a finished malt product ourselves with our own brand on it to uh, brewers and distillers. In just a couple of seasons, the effort has reshaped the business finances. The farm gets a 20% higher price than they would for commercially grown malt barley. They also capture a 10% margin on finished malt sales. Combined, 
the farm's revenue per barley acre has doubled. The first year has been has gone better than we could have imagined and we're just really excited to see where that takes us. But ultimately, this is a family business, something he appreciates even more these days. In the winter of 2018 and 19, my dad was diagnosed with uh, cancer. Because we didn't know what, how much my treatment would take me away from the farm, how long it would be. We had to assume that I would be out for at least a year. Brand new to ownership, he was forced to lean on friends, family, and business mentors. There's no way I would have got through that first year um, without, without guys like that. Ultimately, Christopher says, it made him a better manager. Going through that year of just having to ram through stuff kind of on, on my own in a way, uh, just helped me grow immensely. Today, this family knows, as sure as the snow melts each spring, their future is anchored to these rolling hills, built by generations past and poised to run for generations to come. Congratulations to the Riggers family and Clearwater Farms, a finalist for 2022 Top Producer of the Year. Thank you, Quentin, and congratulations to the Riggers family. And we'll introduce you to the third and final Top Producer of the Year finalist next week. All right, when we come back, the byproduct of ethanol. Carbon dioxide and ethanol production. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator, it's not just any closing wheel. Reach your yield potential. Pre-order by January 31st with coupon code USFR for free shipping. Well, a simple question about CO2 and ethanol sparked a complex answer. Here's John Phipps. Grayling Willer from Akron, Iowa, has questions about proposed CO2 pipelines from ethanol plants. There have been CO2 pipeline projects proposed to go through our area carrying CO2 from ethanol plants to underground storage somewhere. I thought the byproducts of ethanol production were DDGs, MWDGs, and syrup, all good usable feed ingredients. I feel a little foolish to find there is one I didn't know about and that they want to pump it far away for storage. Could this process be improving air quality but putting groundwater quality at risk? Why transport CO2 to storage? Can it be used or stored locally? Where is this CO2 going now without the pipeline? Okay, these are all great questions, but as I started working on the answers, I realized couldn't begin to be done in three minutes, so I'll finish next week, maybe. Let's look at how ethanol plants make carbon dioxide to begin with. Here's the big picture. You grind corn up, mix it with water, cook it, add enzymes to turn the starches into simple sugars, ferment it, and then distill it. The carbon dioxide is produced during the fermentation. Yeast, Single-celled organisms, more like a fungus than an animal or a plant, consume the sugars and release CO2. It is this natural process that puts the bubbles in champagne and beer and the holes in your bread. Using round numbers, the average ethanol plant generates about 150,000 metric tons of CO2 per year. This is, is the stuff coming from fermentation and doesn't include the CO2 from whatever fuel heats the mash. For comparison, a typical 500 megawatt coal plant emits about 3.5 million tons, or 20 times more. 
Only 43 ethanol plants out of about 200 in the U.S. capture any carbon dioxide, so the rest just vent it to the atmosphere. The industrial market for carbon dioxide is about 30 million metric tons, and the biggest use is for carbonation in beverages. But ethanol CO2 is not quite as pure as competing sources like ammonia plants for that market. The fastest growing use is enhanced oil recovery, EOR, which helps squeeze out oil in wells with declining production. Ethanol is the largest supplier of the carbon dioxide market, but it's not being produced where it's needed in order to expand. So next week I'll tackle carbon dioxide storage, transportation, and economics. Thanks, John. And can ethanol production produce net zero carbon emissions? Well, the answer from the farm next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. Well, the Renewable Fuels Association made a pledge to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050 or sooner, and it now says it can achieve that goal well before mid-century. RFA President and CEO Jeff Cooper saying with that, the right policy as well as investments, they can do it by having corn and ethanol producers use renewable energy, including expanding the adoption of corn kernel fiber fermentation at dry mills using carbon capture and sequestration technology at ethanol facilities and the expansion as well of conservation tillage. All right, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. Be sure to tune in next week as we are on the road from the CHS Ag Industry Day in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.